This is Ceasefire Now Radio, where we discuss war and conflicts globally from the perspective of responsibility for U.S. imperialism. I am your host, Russell Webster. Today I'm discussing topics related to Palestine, Greater Middle East, colonialism, and negative impacts of totalitarianism. Today marks the first day of Black History Month, 2024. First, here are some updates on Palestine and the world. These are statistics from October 7th, 2023 to January 31st. 2024. This is from the israelpalestinenews.org. The Palestinian death toll from October 7th to January 31st from U.S.-Israel war is at least 27,278 Palestinians. Over 11,000 children have been killed in this brutal war waged by the United States and Israel. At least 378 Palestinians have been killed by U.S.-Israel strikes in the West Bank, 98 children. This, of course, doesn't include an estimated 8,000 more still buried underneath the rubble, 70% underneath the rubbles projected to be women and children. Another source, the Euro Med, Med Monitor, reports that 33,360 Palestinian deaths. About 1.7 million Palestinians have been displaced. That's 1.7 million within Palestine, and especially concentrated in the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip has roughly 2.2 to 2.4 million Palestinians, and 1.7 million Palestinians are displaced right now. Injuries since October 7th are at 70,000. I'll discuss some on the healthcare system in a bit. Just consider the idea that at least 70,336 Palestinians are injured. It includes at least 65,000 in Gaza and 4,387 in the West Bank. And think about that in light of the U.S.-Israel attacks on the healthcare systems in Gaza and the West Bank. Another thing that Israel is uh, reportedly presently engaged in is uh, something that they were warned about uh, in the beginning, not to... Um, 
not to flood tunnels in Gaza with seawater. And it doesn't take that much uh, thinking to understand the negative impacts of flooding the ground underneath the Gaza Strip with salinated water. It was a certain way, if it was to be done, a certain way of poisoning the ground water, the wells, destroying the soil and damaging sewer systems, but especially poisoning the water for generations to come, disrupting natural water flows, wells, which will also place Gaza even more under the control of Israel who has the power to turn on and off the tap at will. Not just water, electricity, medical aid, fuel. Fuel is an extremely important resource in Gaza because of the ways in which U.S. and the United States and Israel have ensured the strangulation of Palestinians in Gaza. This is extremely anti-democratic. And this increase in fascism throughout the world is deeply troubling. And we should continue to lean into it, to learn about it, and to resist against it. Talk about some of the attacks on the healthcare system and in, in specifically. So the US Israel attacks on the healthcare systems in Gaza and the West Bank are they're unprecedented, first of all. Many of these attacks are happening at a rate and a scale that historians and scholars and analysts and uh, in ways that they haven't seen. Now, this is coupled with the use of technologies, artificial intelligence, and that's why Gaza and the greater uh, Palestine have been referred to as a uh, an incubator, a testing grounds for uh, essentially population control. And now as we see unfolding before us, uh, testing ground for implementing uh, genocide. And what would follow is, uh, you know, ethnic cleansing. So it became clear that, that part of the U.S.-Israel strategy early on, you know, since you know, mid-October at least, it became clear that the strategy and its campaign against Palestine was to obliterate the hospitals in Gaza under the pretext, of course, that, you know, they aren't hospitals at all, but really out military outposts or 
something other. But um, the images of uh, countless tens of thousands of patients uh, inside the hospitals, the uh, reports from physicians and nurses and other staffers who worked in these hospitals, uh, some of them for generations, uh, those were all completely disregarded. Uh, really across the spectrum, across the, the media spectrum. They were suspect, they were questioned. And over, overwhelmingly in the United States, we've towed the line and followed uh, Israel's narrative as well as uh, fueling Israel's narrative and helping to construct it. So to give force to the pretexts uh, that you know the, the hospitals really aren't hospitals, the U.S. Israel are obliged to bring their evidence and the claims to the United Nations. There's already laws in place for this. Since there's legal precedents following uh, World War II, for instance, for dealing with war crimes, those laws have priority over all of these claims in the so-called fog of war. All of these claims that... help embolden and continue the genocide. Now, similar to the ways in which Washington has immediately framed recent attacks on U.S. outposts in the Middle East as coming from Iran, providing no evidence, and then promising retaliation without care for evidence, facts, or laws, the West's automatic reaction is to demonize Iran. It's just a knee-jerk reaction. Don't even have to think about it. It's as though it's already embedded in the mind. It's as though there's a preformed logic in the thinking of those who make apologies for imperial terrorism. They, They don't have to think, for they already have the answers. They're always at the ready. They're right there. So, Everything in the paranoid mind of the empire must trace back to Iran. For that is the boogeyman who's been instilled in the American and Western psyche for generations, at least since 1979. So the harmful Western propaganda that characterizes Iran as a threat to human progress and freedom, it's only been ramped up over the last 10 years. The United States lays all of the problems it's created in the Middle East at the Iran's doorstep. If not Iran, then the West blames China or Russia, some other story. I'm sure many of you have read 1984, Orwell's 1984 and understand the way indoctrination and propaganda work within the imperial core. You know, we're at war with East Asia because we've always been at war with East Asia. (laughs) 
we're at war with with Iran and we've always been at war with Iran. What? No. The information is out there. We just need to develop the means to think critically about it, to understand it. We need to learn to think for ourselves and not to look for our answers from above. You know, to abdicate responsibility for one's actions is to maintain dominance. So, so at the same time that the anti-Iranian propaganda has uh, continued to mount over the years, especially the last 10 to 15 years, curiously around the time when uh, Israel pulled out of Gaza and begun its strategy of focusing on Gaza as an open-air prison or a largest concentration camp in the world. It's been called different things. So the United States lays its problems at Iran's doorstep. But at the same time, as this propaganda, this anti-Iranian propaganda mounted, an extremely harmful pro-Zionist propaganda has proliferated throughout the West, especially in the United States, where it seems to be most concentrated. This is from a, uh, a website. It says, To date... 37 states have adopted laws, executive orders, or resolutions designed to discourage boycotts against Israel. Separately, the U.S. Congress has considered anti-boycott legislation in reaction to the BDS movement. The Senate passed S-1, which contained anti-boycott provisions, on January 28, 2019, by a vote of 74 to 19. The House passed a resolution condemning the boycott of Israel on July 24th, 2019 by a vote of 398 to 17. No federal law was adopted. In May 2023, Senators Marco Rubio, Bill Cassidy, Mike Braun, Rick Scott, Bill Haggerty, and Steve Daines reintroduced the Combating BDS Act of 2023 in May. Now, the main objection to such laws was that they might violate the First Amendment. The Supreme Court, however, effectively rejected this argument when it refused to hear a challenge to an appeals court ruling that the anti-boycott law in Arkansas was not unconstitutional. Other challenges to state laws have also been dismissed by appeals courts. States are listed below the date. So in addition to this, here's a quote from another uh, article. It says, many United States are using anti-boycott laws and executive orders to punish companies that refuse to do business with illegal Israeli settlements in the West Bank. 
So businesses are being punished for doing the right thing. Plain and simple. So for boycotting Israel's human rights abuses against Palestinian people, businesses and even like corporations are being punished in the United States. In the land of freedom and liberty and democracy. Here's another example of of, uh, the power. Really, it's about power. So uh, here's a quote. In November 2018, the global tourism company Airbnb announced it would stop listing properties in settlements as part of a new policy to bar listings that, among other things, contribute to existing human suffering. The day after it announced its decision, Israeli Strategic Affairs Minister Galad Erdan wrote to the governors of Illinois, New York, Florida, Missouri, and California, encouraging them to take action in retaliation to commercial dealings with Airbnb. After several states took action against Airbnb, it changed course and said it would not remove settlement listings from its platform. Wow. That's power, folks. It's not our power. Well, it's U.S. US Israel power. Now, a major component of what keeps people in line is fear. Now, many people in the United States and around the world are afraid to speak their mind or, or take a position critical of U.S. Israel because they're afraid. I'm going to talk more about that after this break.
Listening to Ceasefire Radio now. Ceasefire Now Radio. I'm your host, Russell Webster. And today I've been discussing U.S. imperialism and its relation to the ongoing war in Palestine, uh, along with other topics related to the greater Middle East as the wars continue to escalate. And we are trying to keep you updated because if you heard the first part of the show you know that there is also a war on media there's a war on journalists I'll talk about that too and that's uh, if you've if you've listened to the show before you might have heard me mention that this show directly came out of uh, local needs to spread the word and to uh, bring consciousness not only to the ongoing occupation in Palestine and the genocide that's presently uh, unfolding on our screens right before us, but also to talk about the ways in which U.S. imperialism materializes locally and globally. You remember that act locally, think globally. That, that old saying still rings true. You know, that the systems of oppression that we're talking about that are oppressing the world are reflected within the imperial core. So we see these sorts of things happening all around us, too. That's also why some folks say that the struggles for liberation from colonialism and imperialism and Western domination, governments, that those things are global struggles as well. So what that means is that the people who are struggling to liberate themselves from the oppressive nature of colonialism and white supremacy within the United States are reflected in those without the United States too. So we have local local organizations and local folks struggling keep people safe, fed, healthy, connected to their families, connected to resources. And at the same time, we want to change the world, don't we? So we're also trying to figure out the sort of world that we would like to live in that is quite different, I hope, than the world that we're in now. And so that's why it's so important to act locally. And in the coming months, you'll 
hear a lot more local on this this show here. And then me, sometimes stumbling, but attempting to make connections between the, the impacts of imperialism and colonialism abroad, but also at home, also wherever you are, within what, what some people call the, the imperial core. So I was, saying, I was saying earlier that a major component of what keeps people in line, what keeps us all in our place and without the essential capacity to make these major changes that are needed to free ourselves is fear. Fear keeps many people in line. It's not a new, new phenomenon. This goes back to ancient times. So for many, many people in the United States, and this is obviously nothing new to the United States either. It's a common theme throughout U.S. history. Though many people in the United States and around the world are afraid to speak their mind or take a position critical of U.S. Israel because well, they're afraid of losing their jobs, for one. That's it's one of the things. It's a real fear. Countless people have lost their jobs and much more over the decades for choosing to speak out about Palestine. I remember reading about, uh, this must have been eight, ten years ago, reading about people uh, within the United States who were disappeared for having uh, criticisms of of Palestine, of the of the occupation of Palestine and U.S. and Israel policies, they were just literally taken in the night and and deported. We're talking about uh, you know professors and people like that, and that's that's been going on. These things have been happening. It's not new. So I heard somebody, uh, quite a few people actually recently, um, you know, toe the line and toe the party line and, and uh, sort of protect the status quo in a way by spreading this fear of uh, Trump, for, for instance, like, yeah, it's Trump is uh, Trumpism and Trump, and that whole uh, the ideology is connected to that. Uh, there's nothing, nothing nice about them. But this idea that we need to be so afraid that we just we just continue to insulate ourselves within the herd and allow the machine to essentially keep us in line and afraid. And that's just one way of doing that. And it's, it's also uh, extremely anti-democratic too. You know, this fascism in some ways is, anti, is just a way to say anti-democratic sometimes or maybe all the time. But this idea that they're, they're this, the, the two-party system is just the way, it just is what, what uh, 
It's all that we have. And if you're not somehow devoted to one of the two parties, especially when it comes time to uh, pull that election lever, then you are un-American. You know, someone might call you un-American. God forbid you be un-American. So these are sorts of things that help keep people in line. Like there, we, uh, One option off the top of my mind might be people might want to organize a third party or another party. Uh, you know, that, 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 uh, that's something that's not possible uh, or something that is realistic is, uh, you know, that's an article of faith. But it's also a measure of the fear in the, in the, the so-called democracy. I'm not, I'm not a big political person and I'm not into, uh, I don't necessarily advocate that avenue. I'm just saying, if you are, uh, if you are in fear, you are going to resort to what you know. And we're seeing that happening everywhere right now. So that, that, that fear of, of losing financial stability, of losing your job, uh, you know, countless people have lost their jobs and much more, you know, because they spoke out uh, for Palestine and other, other causes during the Black Lives Matter movement. We, we've seen the same thing. We've seen fear. We've seen people uh, attacked. We've seen people lose their jobs, their lives, imprisoned for taking a position that should be, uh, you know, a no-brainer. It's just the right thing to do. And yet so many of us are afraid to just do the right thing. What does that mean? What does that say about the world? So more than losing financial stability, many, many people are afraid of uh, alienation. They're afraid to fracture the ties that bind their way of life, essentially. They're afraid to be segmented from their friends, family, religion, political party, or other fraternities. That's a real fear people have. Not that it's justified, but that it's understandable in a sense. We can make sense of it as we should be doing. We should understand the world, not just with the received information from above, but we should be able to think through it. And if we think through it, we should be able to eventually come to some sort of principles, I would hope. Those are the sorts of things that allow us to understand the connections between uh, the liberation of, of Palestine, for example, and the liberation of African Americans in the United States and the world over. Like, being on, on the, the, the right side, there's a principle underneath there. And that's not something that you can just adopt I don't I think you have to learn that yourself you have to figure it out and you have to but that takes 
working through that fear too. It takes working through discomfort. That's what learning is, no matter what you're learning. It doesn't matter if you're learning uh, maths or if you're learning uh, how to play a musical instrument or a sport or memorizing lines for a play or understanding the history and the functions of white supremacy and imperialism and governments and things like that that can seem extremely complex and uncomfortable to understand. It's an absolute necessity. That's freedom. To be able to think through the images and the claims that are being made. To be able to think through the politics and the divisions and the inherently oppressive nature of being governed. That's, there's a freedom in that. But that's only something you can do. Someone can't help you get there. There's an old parable about that. I'll talk about that in depth sometime by a, Plato, a philosopher named Plato allegory of the cave and there's been many others since then many people are afraid to be segmented from their friends and family and it's real now that fear makes a fertile ground for a rise in fascism the fear has made a fertile ground for a rise in fascism which we've seen spread through the world in many ways And it's increased over the recent decades and years. It's been a common theme since World War II, depending on how you want to look at it. It's a common element dating back to the Declaration of Independence. It just depends on your level of understanding how fascism works, how imperialism works, how colonialism works, what manifest destiny means, the pretext for which it was used to enact one of the most brutal genocides in human history, North America, the forced enslavement of countless people's from northern Africa and throughout Africa who were kidnapped and sold into slavery. All of these things are a part of U.S. history. And they're not that far back. Not as far back as we're indoctrinated to believe. They're very much with us. Black History Month is a time to double down on that. And it should extend all year. It doesn't end in March So part of that rise in fascism means the state taking control over or what people are exposed to, the narratives, means to having control over things like media. So going back to U.S.-Israel updates, U.S.-Israel, uh, they've, they've 
unleashed unprecedented attacks on journalists and media staffers. Right, right in front of the world's eyes, right in front of the world's stage. And you know, so among those unpre- unprecedented, uh, horrible things that have unleashed in the last four months is uh, during this genocide on Palestinians are assassinations of journalists and other media staffers. Ga- Gaza has been termed uh, the most dangerous conflict for journalists in recent history. Uh, one United Nations expert, here's a quote from them. They say, We have received disturbing reports that despite being clearly identifiable in jackets and helmets marked press or traveling in well-marked press vehicles, journalists have come under attack, which would seem to indicate that the killings, injury, and detention are a deliberate strategy by Israeli forces to obstruct the media and silence critical reporting. Now, since October 7th, 2023, U.S.-Israel have killed more than 122 journalists and media workers. 122. People have been killed while they're reporting in the middle of a field, far away from buildings and people. Drone strike or sniper shot kill over and over but the IDF has also captured many journalists who they've tortured and imprisoned they're doing it right now and we're continuing to receive reports well this terrorism on media is in many many ways unprecedented in ways we don't still don't even know about. And without social media, it's not even clear how the world would be able to follow the war on Palestine. Pal- Palestinians, some who weren't even prior to the war, uh, engaged in journalism and uh, weren't vocal in activism, have resorted to becoming ad hoc journalists just to get the word out, just to get the truth out. That's fascism. This is fascism we're seeing, that we're funding, that we're leading, that the United States is leading. Biden administration is leading this carrying on the Trump administration's policies, which were carrying on the Obama administration policies, which were carrying on Bush II's policies during the war on terror. So this war on terror is a very fascistic war too. I'm going to take a short break. A 
Specifically, I want to talk about the feminine, about the fact that there never really was one. There was no feminine. The Irish people were only allowed to eat potatoes. All of the other food, meat, fish, vegetables were shipped out of the country under armed guard to England while the Irish people starved. And then, in the middle of all this, they gave us money not to teach our children Irish. And so we lost our history. And this is what I think is still hurting me. You see, we're like a child that's being battered, has to drive itself out of its head because it's frightened, still feels all the painful feelings. But they lose contact with the memory. And this leads to massive self-destruction, alcoholism, drug addiction, all desperate attempts at running. And in its worst form, becomes actual killing. And if there ever is gonna be healing, there has to be remembering and then grieving so that there then can be forgiving. There has to be knowledge and understanding. All the lonely people. American army regulation says you mustn't kill more than 10% of the nation because to do so causes permanent psychological damage. It's not permanent, but they didn't know that. Anyway, during the supposed famine, we lost a lot more than 10% of our nation through deaths on land or in ships of emigration. But what finally broke us was not starvation, but its use in the controlling of our education. Schools go on about Black 47, on and on about the terrible famine. But what they don't say is in truth, there really never was one. Excuse me. Take a look, shall we? The highest statistics of child abuse in the EEC, and we say we're a Christian country, but we've lost contact with our history. See, we used to worship God as a mother. We're suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Look at all our old men in the pubs. Look at all our young people on drugs. We used to worship... Famine, Sinead O'Connor. This is Russell Webster. I'm your host on Ceasefire Now Radio. All the lonely people, where do they all come from? Loneliness. Serious. I'm seeing mass loneliness right now. And we got to do something about it. The way, another way fascism thrives and oppression and those sorts of horrible things is keeping people alienated from each other, keeping them lonely, keeping them in a sort of forced isolation. The um, philosopher Hannah Arendt uh, knew, knew something about that. She lived through the Holocaust survived the Holocaust and wrote a book called The Origins of Totalitarianism, which I think is going to become increasingly important in the coming years to follow. And it's something I'll probably be referencing often, but as Hannah Arendt gets through the history of anti-Semitism and the development of nation states and democracies and 
communism and all sorts of other things. It's a very, very long book. Uh, get through the Holocaust, the horrors of the Holocaust and the World War II. Then toward the end of the, the book, there's a section where Arendt gets pretty deep into the concepts of isolation and loneliness and things like that. And I encourage you to learn more about those sorts of things. And if you're feeling uh, loneliness and things like that, to seek out ways to find your community and find your people, find people who are like-minded and who also want to help change the world in positive ways. Don't find those those folks or those pre pre filled uh, um, fraternities or organizations that only want to do harm. Stay away from those. We need to build. We need to create, and we need to resist the fear. Ultimately, the fear that is supposed to keep us in line, keep us in check. And allow things like this genocide to just continue on until enough of us finally do something about it and stop it from happening anymore. And stop it from ever happening again. Like, never again, right? I've run out of time. I wanted to talk more about loneliness and isolation and perhaps ways we can get out of that. I'll have to talk about that next time. I'll ceasefire now radio. Thank you so much for joining me today. And keep Palestine, Black History Month at the forefront of your mind right now. And let's try to make these connections together. Take care, everyone out there.